welcome to season two of We've Been Had, a song-by-song walk through the songs of St. Vincent. I'm Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. And uh, yeah, we have a new beginning here. Overall plan is to cover in detail four albums by St. Vincent, the way we did for the four Uncle Tupelo albums in season one. But it feels weird to skip one, since she has five canonical. So we will just cover the first album, Marry Me, as one thing at a high level tonight, before getting into the more typical song-by-song format next episode. But first, in case anyone has come in new for the new artist, it's weird to me to think about, like, this is a natural stepping on point for people who like St. Vincent and have no idea who the hell we are. So, you know, like, you've got to be prepared for... Yeah, it probably helps too that we're we're dealing with a more modern artist. So yeah, not someone who stopped recording uh, songs as a group in what nineteen ninety five. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're like lots of children conceived after Uncle Tupelo broke up who can vote now. So we're more with the times here. Yeah, I don't know. Just so for anyone new coming in, I thought like let's introduce ourselves, talk about who we are, and and why Saint Vincent. Um, <laughs> do you want to go first, or should I? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll go first. Um, so kind of the the why, uh, I mean, one of the reasons is I think we wanted to do a, an artist that was more contemporary yeah. and an artist that we had gotten into re- reasonably recently. Well, so Keith and I both grew up listening to Uncle Tupelo, so there's a lot of like institutionalized experiences yeah. with that music. Yeah. At least for me, the St. Vincent stuff's the last few years, so... It's a it's a little fresher and and just I think it'll bring some different energy to the show. Totally, totally agree. Um, yeah, and I on, on my end, I uh, for me, like I've I, we'll talk about this a lot more when we get to the song. But like I've just kind of been fascinated by Saint Vincent since twenty eleven ish when uh, there's a radio station in Minneapolis, The Current, that is pretty good. Um, it's like the the, the tastemaker radio station in town and but they will like take a song and just play it into the ground and they did that with St. Vincent's Surgeon Um, and I just remember like hearing it you know that winter over and over and being like well what the hell is this song that's like playing the theme from You Only Live Twice but a little bit differently Um, and tracking that down I was like oh the other thing for me Aside from like actively responding to St. Vincent's music, I just, I've had this recognition that when I was younger, I did not take, I, there's this subconscious thing where like, I would have, I would have disputed this at the time, but I think like I just kind of subconsciously didn't take music by women as seriously. Um, and after recognizing that, I just I feel like I want to like actively push back against that and like so like I like the idea of like well here's this woman who's doing very interesting music let's you know whatever spotlight we've got let's let's shine it on her instead of just like some other guy with a guitar it's a pretty dim spotlight if we're being honest but it's like an old cell phone it's something so I actually I actually think she sort of transcends gender a little bit uh, just because she just is yeah so one of the nice things about living in 2019 soon to be 2020 is i think sometimes just being good carries the day yeah and I, I, I feel like that's what i get from saint vincent is that she's just good yeah yeah it's that, that's 
she is this prodigy. And I mean, that's, you know, I had a bunch of, uh, I had a bunch of background stuff worked out, you know, to kind of soft intro the album. And maybe that's, maybe it's a good, maybe it's good to pivot into that, that like this, she is just this musical prodigy who grew up being musical and uh, went to the Berklee College of Music and just, you know, just has like, we're in Minneapolis, so Prince is on everybody's mind, but like, it makes me think of Prince the way she is just like, drenched in music from an early age it seems like yeah and I, I mean i think just kind of growing up as a with her aunt and uncle in the music business uh, yeah. was was probably helpful yeah I, I i know that when keith and i saw saint vincent in omaha which is a, a side story that's that's kind of humorous uh her aunt and uncle opened for her and i just remember seeing them walk on stage and i'm like oh boy what what have I gotten myself yeah. into? Because it's like the you know they're like older this older guy with a guitar and this this lady who's singing like jazz lyrics on top of it, but they really blew me away when they we were saw really him. good. Like his guitar playing combined with her singing was just amazing. Talking Patty, they were called. Talking Patty, yep. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, but they played a version of of uh, Castles in the Sand yeah. and Little Wing, yeah. the Jimi Hendrix song. And uh, our Jimi Hendrix songs together that really, I don't know, I, I walked in with low expectations and then I saw them and I was, I did the classic, like, judge the book by its cover. Oh boy. <laughs> but it was, it, it was just another lesson that, that you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't judge the book by its cover. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love being surprised and like, that was, that was a hell of a good surprise. I just, I think it was. I can't remember if it was Mark Marin or one of the famous podcast hosts was interviewing um, one of the guys from the E Street Band. The guy who's on The Sopranos. What's that guy's name? Um, little Stephen. Stephen Van Zandt. Yes. And he's he had this kind of interesting idea that uh, that everybody should be in a cover band at some point so they understand like the quality of a song that you need to write in order to make it to perform it. I think that's a good idea. So I feel like maybe that's what she got from serving as a roadie for her aunt and uncle was just sort of understanding this baseline of quality that, that yeah. you need to be a professional musician. I, that's that's a good observation. Okay, so to run through a, just a quick couple of biographical highlights, St. Vincent is the stage name of Annie Clark, born in 1982 in Oklahoma, which... Between her and the Flaming Lips, I just I feel like Oklahoma punches way above its weight in terms of music that you wouldn't expect coming from a state. I noticed you're discounting the oaky noodling. I, you know, not music, but like very high on the weird and awesome factor. It's it's music as art. <laughs> it's the the music of the fish. Um. She yeah grew up in Texas then after after leaving Oklahoma and was from a musical family went to the Berkeley College of Music for three years before dropping out because they emphasized technique over emotion which I think I'm going to be dragging on stage a bunch tonight um, <laughs> we'll get there um, let's see she spent time in the Polyphonic Spree and in Sufjan Stevens Band before going off to do this. Did you dig into the polyphonic spree? Yeah, I 
I've always liked them as a concept, but I, I'm just, you know, they're fine. So, uh, as I'm Googling it, this is, this is not a particularly important nugget, but, but uh, the guy from the poly, Polyphonic Spree uh, was the lead vocalist for this band Tripping Daisy okay. in the 90s. Yeah. A band that I saw perform at the maintenance shop in Ames, Iowa. Right on. And the show wasn't particularly memorable, but his stage persona did uh, ha- make one of my college roommates wear swim goggles as like an ex- fashion accessory for at least three weeks. <laughs> well, that's fitting because like, I hear the polyphonic spree described as half band, half cult all the time. And so like, I guess you are ascribing him cult leader powers here. He can make a man wear swim goggles. It was odd, it, but you know it was when you're living in the middle of Iowa, your your access to to shows is not great. You take what you can get. Yeah. For me, like her being part of the Polyphonic Spree makes sense. The Sufjan Stevens thing, I mean, like of course it makes sense because you're a working musician. Here's a chance to be in a you know middling profile stage band. Um, but man, I I'm not a Sufjan Stevens guy. I go back and listen and try and listen for like traces of her. <laughs> Maybe they're there, but I I don't know. I, I don't have any any actual information behind this, but I feel like Sufjan Stevens is just sort of a it's sort of a collection of session museum musicians that are playing what he wants them to play. I think that's exactly yeah. Let's see. Oh, I've also ooh, that's I've got her as part of a Glenn Branca guitar ensemble, which makes sense. And apparently she was in a noise rock band called the Skullfuckers. <laughs> which like, I wish that project would have stuck. I wonder what uh, why Glenn Danzig never was in a band <laughs> called the Skullfuckers. That seems like so right up his alley. I guess I don't know who was el- who else was in her Skullfuckers. Maybe Glenn Danzig was. I hope that's the case. Oh, um, yeah. But so you know, after all of that, she in two thousand seven goes and records "Marry Me." It's released on Beggar's Banquet. Uh, she produces it herself, which is interesting. But I mean, it makes sense. Here's a person who clearly knew a shitload about music already um yeah I don't know it still seems like a pretty big lift to do your first album yourself yeah well I mean I think there's like this progression where you start out producing yourself because you can't afford to hire a producer and uh you know it's just the only way to get something made and then you know then you get to the point where you can't afford a producer and have a producer. You know, you know, there's like this sandwich zone. Right. If you're the self-producing type. Um, I just read this as she probably couldn't afford. Well, so, I mean, honestly, this is the thing that I wonder about. My first read was she had to produce it herself because she couldn't afford anyone and probably just thought she could do it. But one of the things I'm going to be hitting a bunch on here is that the... A bunch of the piano on this was played by Mike Garson, uh, who was Bowie's piano player off and on since the early 70s. And, you know, so so she must have, and I, I don't know if, 
you know, I don't know what the arrangements were for him to be if he was just showing up and playing or if he was paid, but she had to be at least somewhat plugged in to be like drawing Mark Garson or yeah, Mike Garson over to play piano. I don't know. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is like if this is just like this hard scrabble DIY, I'm going to make my own record thing, it's, it's one with at least one like fairly high profile. Yeah, session player. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if having having relatives in the music business helps with that. I think it's gotta. And she probably also had a bunch of contacts, you know, from... I think going to Berkeley probably helps too, because yeah. I, I think a lot of people that are involved in the music business uh, cycle through there. Yeah. I'm sure you meet people working with Sufjan Stevens. I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure you meet... I, I don't know who you meet in the polyphonic spree. But a lot of people. Yeah. You no. meet the guy from Tripping Daisy. Yeah, fair enough. I uh, So the thing with me, Tripping Daisy, this is like a, a, a digression, but, you know, there's the there's the old Minneapolis band Trip Shakespeare. And, like, just the fact that I heard about Trip Shakespeare first means that I can never... For me, Tripping Daisy was always like, oh, wait, aren't they? Oh, oh no, they're not. And, like, that's that's basically what I got on that band. Yeah, the interesting thing about uh, Trip Shakespeare is that uh, that band kind of basically went on to become semi-sonic. Yeah. So it's like you are you went from Toolmaster of Brainerd, which is a Trip Shakespeare song, to Closing Time. Closing Time. <sighs> Over the course of this season, if I can find ways to just openly bag on semi-sonic, I'll be happy. And I, I think those ways will come up. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to just do you want to edge into talking about the album at all? Or yeah, or I mean, we should probably, we should probably point out that uh, she her stage name comes from a Nick Cave song. Oh, yeah. Which I, I know this is like an offense worthy of exile from Hipster Island, but I have never been uh never been that into Nick Cave. Like I just don't. Uh, it's not that I don't like it. Like I listen to that song. Uh, there she goes, my beautiful world. That are in preparation for the show. But yeah, I've just not spent a lot of time around Nick Cave's music. I I first heard about Nick Cave when a in high school when a friend of ours got this. Um, our friend Joel got this record of just people covering REM, and one of the songs on it was Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and so I was just like, like you know, like. The cover was fine, but I was just like, oh, they, they're just, they're automatically cool if they recorded an R.E.M. cover and got, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not a person who sits down and is like, I'm going to relax with some Nick Cave this evening. He does in that song, uh, rhyme the artist, uh, Paul Gauguin with the word tropical, which is pretty impressive. That's, that's a stretch. Yeah. It's, and as you, as you know, if you listen to the first season, one of the things that always amazes me when people are able to use the Bob Dylan trick and rhyme words that don't really rhyme. I love that there's an art flex there because when I was in, uh, when I was in grad school, there's a visual artist named Nick Cave who, uh, and they have one of his things at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. His big thing is making these sound suits. Um, so they're like these decorated suits that you wear that are designed to like make weird sounds when you walk around in them. And they're pretty cool. Um, but, you know, 
as we're talking about him in class, like you know, they they don't they just show pictures of the suits, but they don't show pictures of the guy. And I'm just like, well, okay, Nick Cave, some kind of sound-based art. This is you know, like it, it's got to be, um, and it is definitely not. And, uh, so yeah, I, I made a I totally made an ass of myself, like talking about yeah, Nick Cave. He's you know, the bad seeds are pretty good, and people are looking at me, what? You think you you think the artist would have would produce their work under a different name just to just to sort of avoid that? I don't know. I think he's just like fuck you. I was here. I, I think. Well, I don't know who's older. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I did notice, like bringing it back. I've noticed that in interviews with Annie Clark, she seems to get pretty pissed now when people ask her about the name. Like I think that's like on her list of like. Just fucking Google it. I've explained this so many times. Yeah, I can see that being frustrating. I mean, I would actually, if I were her, I would start just deploying alternate explanations. <laughs> yeah. Like, just to throw off the Wikipedia machine. Like, you know, like each person you talk to, give them a slightly different story. <laughs> that actually, that would be pretty fun. And I think that that's kind of within her artistic sphere. I just think misinformation in this case is very it would be very would be very funny. I agree. I, uh, if if we somehow attract her attention by doing this show, I, I hope that's the idea that gets through. It's like, I mean, maybe it's too late now. It's never too late. She can always start spreading. Yeah, I mean, falsehoods. Let's yeah. do it. This was a thing that I was going to bring in later, but I mean, since we're kind of structurally freeform here anyway, I. I'm curious about if she... I'm curious as we go in, if we're going to see like this tension between St. Vincent as a persona and Annie Clark as a person. Um, and if that's... Since... I mean, I started hearing this in 2016 after Bowie died. Um, and I think it goes... Well, I know it goes further than that. Further back than that. Because it's mentioned in the... Uh, Pitchfork review of Marry Me from 2007. You know, these comparisons of St. Vincent and Bowie just are like, are nonstop. And, and, you know, I I will get into more of that. But I wonder if part of that is like this, I record under a persona, but, you know, you know, it's really me. Um, You know, I mean, that's kind of, that's what Bowie was doing with Ziggy Stardust. Like, yeah, I'm going to say I'm Ziggy Stardust tonight, but you know, I'm really david boy but i'm really david jones right yeah. um you know but she and she's changed the persona of who she presents herself as somewhat with each album but she doesn't change the name i don't know i don't know what the it's a hall of mirrors man yeah i mean i i guess i think of it as you know the the only really i mean i don't know her so the only window i have to her is through her music and i think that I, it's probably a little bit of both, right? It's probably yeah. a little bit of the stage persona and a little bit. I don't think you could record like her lyrics are pretty personal, so I don't think you could record that as just a an adjunct to your personality yeah. and have it be compelling. So, I mean, I would imagine she probably puts a lot of herself into this. It feels like it, but I have read that she's a, a pretty private person. So, yeah, you know, I mean. I, and I, which I totally get. Like I, the last thing I would want is a bunch of people like in my business 
yeah. like dissecting my personal life and yes. things like that. That just that would that, drive me insane. I, well, it, it. I mean, it's funny. Like I, I just because of the nature of the show. Like a lot of the time, I can't. Uh, when I'm thinking about her and her music, like I, part of my brain is always running this like back routine comparing her to Jay Farrar. Um, and it's, I bet it's an interesting thing that like you know he's here's another person who like has heartfelt lyrics, but I think he. It feels like she lets you in somewhat into her inner life through her lyrics, or at least she appears to be, you know, and like, like, Jay Farrar is this person who, his lyrics are this wall, you know, all they'll tell you is like, what was thought of. And I guess the reason I think of that is because like, I, I do feel like there's this weird balance of like, she's, she feels hard to know, but she also feels like she's like, very open and, I don't know, I, we'll be talking about this for a year, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interest. That's an interesting thing, just of you know the view you get of people through their art and the the actual person that's making yeah. the art. Like, yeah. I, I imagine those are often uh, often different. Yeah, I, I think usually. But I guess I would feel like if I was in that position, like I, I feel like I would be more in the J Ferrar camp. I'd just be like, look, the art speaks for itself. Mm. Like I'm. There'll be no questions. There'll be no questions. Yeah. I So hopping back, just looking at some notes I've got about at the album level still, I was surprised. It comes out in 2007. Pitchfork reviewed it and gave it a very positive review. Um, it was smarmy as fuck. Really <laughs> Shocking. Like, like, I think Pitchfork has gotten much better, but man, 2007... That's like uh that's like golden age for the the pitchfork smart machine. Yeah, it was not not good. Did note a bunch, you know, made a big deal about her background as a side musician, which makes sense. I so I brought Prince up once before. I this album like it's not quite one of those Prince albums where he plays everything, but she plays a lot on this. This is like this is very much her show. She's Credited with vocals, guitar, bass, piano, organ, Moog synthesizer, um, other synthesizer, the melodica, the xylophone, the vibraphone, the dulcimer, some drum programming, triangle, and percussion. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I know she had, she did bring in um, Brian Teasley from Man or Astro Man to play drums, and then Mike Garson was there playing piano. Which is weird because she's credited for credited for some piano too, but yeah, I don't know. So mostly, you know, mostly her, just with a drummer and. It's a pretty things. impressive litany of just instruments. To yeah, play. yeah. That when we were talking Uncle Tupelo, it took us three albums before we get to the point where there's like a multi instrumentalist, and and what that really meant was they had a guy who could play. The who could play guitar and slide guitar and banjo and fiddle, you know, like like it was like and father one of the Dixie Chicks. No, that that was a session musician. Oh was, damn it! But uh, yeah, you know, like like that in that world, the multi instrumentalist like it, it exists, but it's you know it's like this range of like we've got some different stringed instruments, and you know she's. You've got stringed instruments, uh, you've got pianos, organs, I guess xylophones and vibraphones are kind of 
basically keyboards to play, but you know, the percussion element. And she's got other percussion. Like like she can just she has this like spectrum of the level of just like baseline, like this isn't the band's multi-instrumentalist. This is just the person in the band who can play fucking everything. Right. It's, it's nuts. It's a, so it's kind of a far departure from where I was at in my musical tastes in my early 20s when like I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that the Ramones formed as a Beach Boys cover band but couldn't figure out the Beach Boys so they like came up with their own style of music. That is pretty beautiful though. It's it's beautiful, but it's just different. Well, okay, so here's the thing: like we haven't really gotten into the meat of the album yet, but I get the feeling. Like, I guess I don't want to speak for you. I know that for me, I love her later work. I don't love this album. To me, like this album just feels like there's some promise here and there, or there's a lot of promise. It's not here and there. It's all over the place, but it doesn't cohere. And I think that's because, it, it, to me, like, you know, my, my explanation for this is that at this point, she's just kind of drowning in her own capabilities. Uh, you know, she can do so much that, you know, it's not. Whereas, like, the Ramones, I think, benefited from not being able to do too much because then, you know, like, they just they had to channel what they had into what they could do. Yeah, I guess so there's a limiter there. Yeah, I think yeah. limitations help art a ton. I mean, I think from what I, I think the some of the lyrics on this album are very good. Uh, it just, it doesn't always know what it wants to be. Yeah. Um, there are songs on here that sound like, more like, uh, like vocal jazz songs. Yeah. Um, there are, there are songs on here that sound like electronica songs. So it's, it's just, I think it's kind of, kind of learning what works and, and what doesn't. Yeah. But I mean, for the most part, I thought the lyrics were, were really interesting when I, because that's one of the things I enjoy about this, is sitting down and looking at the lyrics and and listening to the songs, which is something I don't typically do. So yeah, that's that's kind of a fun, fun thing. So did you find, like, what lyrics like hit you here? As you know, this is yeah. So I think one of the things that let me find the, let me find the song that I was thinking about today like I, I kind of enjoyed this uh this uh, piece of actually if you look at the if the marry me the first album track i think it's the first song but maybe it's the second song but it says it's just the way she structures the many people want to make money make love make friends make peace with death but most mainly want to win the game they came to win they want to come out ahead like I just I kind of like the way she plays with language. Yeah. Um, and then there was the the song about Paris yeah, that I really Paris is burning. That it was like I mean it sounds like a like the guitar part sounds almost like like a gypsy type guitar sound like not quite Django but uh, or Django Reinhardt but like if Django Reinhardt and Gogol Bordello had a baby <laughs> like that's maybe what it would sound like that, and then you threw in some electronica that's a good combo my my note for Paris is burning um to me that song and I can't remember the specifics of this but I guess I just have so stilted so drama kid in high school <laughs> towards the end and I think that's you know I guess the, the one of the knocks here is this is a very young person I think she was 25 when this was recorded and I saw in one of the interviews that she had written most of these songs when she was 18 or 19. So, like, you know, sometimes at that age, you, you're, like, amping up drama yeah. that, that 
wasn't there. I do like the I do like the kind of correspondent voice that she used in it. I write to give word the war is over. <laughs> yeah. She's good at that. That that's a thing that she does, like over and over, is like hop out of something and comment on it in the song. I don't know. That's uh I was surprised to look and see that only one of these songs is driven by a drum machine, uh, you know, landmines. The rest of them are that live drummer. Because the beats on this, you know, you, you talked about it a little bit when you said that it sounds like electronica. Like, she has always had this weird jittery, this weird penchant for jittery beats. And, like, this album, it's really, it's just, like, very... And, you know, like, like to where it's, like, almost anxiety-inducing to, like, try and go along with the beats sometime. Um, I don't know. She, uh, I was kind of interested, not that I feel like I'm jumping around, but the you brought up the electronica element and i feel like they're just there's a wide variety of kind of the so her voice is usually out in front but the yeah. you know sometimes in the background there's a guitar playing or a piano but a few times it's like there's like these weird synthesized like like one of them sounds like a baby crying kind <laughs> of and, and it's just it's always fascinating to me that people come up with that and then are able to blend them into something that's yeah. that's listenable like yeah it's just it's it's kind of like the it's like when when you see the Wilco movie and you they turn up all the like all the different uh, pieces and the one is just them yelling smoke pot yeah. as like a as like a just in the background thing yeah, just rhythmic figure it's it, that that part of it's fascinating that people can figure that out and, yeah. and blend all those elements together into something cohesive yeah and that's i mean it's cool that that uh, it's fascinating to me that that's like an inherent part of music now and you know humans have been making music for thousands of years and like uh, you know what that like at most that the ability to do that is maybe 50 years old and if you were doing that 50 years ago you were like out there on the crazy edge i don't know yeah it's and it's is another thing that in my 20s i probably would not have supported right uh but i feel like now it's it it could really add to to the value of a song yeah like get that those sonic elements whether they come from instruments or electronic recordings i mean it's really it's the same to me yeah totally agree you know i i guess that that you can use your outlook on that lifetime to track how you feel about Sonic Youth. I have, that's that's sort of an ongoing project for me to see, to track my feelings on Sonic Youth. I had this weird experience um, last week of realizing, I guess I found this out, I was trying to track down something for the show and I don't remember what it was, but I found out that I saw Sonic Youth in 1995, apparently, and like gave so little a shit about it that I forgot until like I I would have sworn that I'd only seen them with the Flaming Lips, you know, in yeah, at the State Fair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, I saw them open for REM, and it left no, which like speaks really badly of me. You know, like I feel like we kind of buried the lead. Like I'm I'm going on about seeing Tripping Daisy, and you know, like you saw like Sonic Youth in the the kind of prime era and didn't give a shit like like it's it's an indictment of me it's i don't know i don't know those were different times actually want to 
take a break? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. We are back, and we're, I guess we're starting to dig deeper into the meat of, uh, of Marry Me. So since we're talking about the mid-90s anyway, I wanted to run one thing by you that kept coming up in my head as I was listening to this album. Do you remember the Beck album from like 90, I don't know when it's from, from the 90s, um, called Stereopathetic Soul Manure? Is that the one with Dead Wildcat on it? Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, I, so if you haven't heard that album, it's, it's this very early, it, it's Beck's equivalent of this album, basically. It's like when he was unsigned and was just putting together, you know, self-producing an album where he plays everything. And uh, I don't know, it's just, it's an interesting contrast to me because it's like kind of the same thing, but... Uh, but so different, you know, like this album is really defined by her flexing a lot of musical muscles. And that Beck album is kind of fun and kind of shitty, but, uh, you know, it's just like Beck reveling in. It's both of those things. Um, I feel like this album sounds a lot better than that album does, but, uh, is Satan gave me a taco. It is. Yeah. That's a great song. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's sort of like, that album has always struck me as like is like what happens if you just put a like supremely creative person in front of like recording equipment yeah like you get you get just weirdness and craziness and yeah you get 40 minutes of anarchy of which maybe like 12 are transcendent yeah right and then the rest is just it and it maybe it's a different 12 minutes for each people for each person (laughs) maybe that's the but so, so the interesting thing to me is like, you know, like I think there's a lot, there's a lot of ways where you can compare that album and this album. I think Marry Me is way more, you know, obviously it's way more even start to finish. Like it's a better, better put together album. Um, I think the back album is actually like, you know, e- even, even if it's weird and messy, like there's just, there's, there's this humanity to it that, that isn't, I don't know, like, like there's something at this point in St. Vincent's career, like there's this mechanistic thing to the music that she loses eventually, but, but, you know, hasn't lost yet. And like, that's, I guess I would rather have like messy human anarchy than like icy mechanistic perfection if that makes sense yeah and i mean maybe that's part of you know going being such a talented musician it's, yeah i think there's you know, there's some people that are that are, that have different strengths and she's so good at that's when we saw her pl- perform that's the thing like her guitar playing is just so on point that's that, nuts and it's like i mean this is this is probably beyond the scope of this discussion, but I mean, it takes, I think it takes a certain kind of person to get out there with just yourself. That is that, that show. So we saw her when she was touring for mass seduction and it was when it was, she had no backup band. It was just entirely her and backing tracks. And like, I, I just, that that was the gutsiest show I've ever seen. And she fucking tomahawk dunked it. Just, just put it all out there too. It's, and and I've seen people do that before. I mean, we saw when we saw Iggy Pop perform, 
there was a lady that was was just had a guitar and a bunch of pedals and was you know and it just is it always impresses me that yeah. you know you're not it's one thing to go to like your local coffee shop by yourself right and yeah. test out some new material but you're you're gonna go out there with just yourself like that's just it's just really impressive to me well so i mean but and, and i think like it's the thing you know mentioning that is wild too because like so novelaire I think that's how you say it. Was was that woman that opened for Iggy? And like, yeah, that that seemed very brave. But at the same time, like, you know, she's just making her own loops. Like, there's not like Annie Clark going out and having to like play along with these just like relentless, fast backing. Like, like if Novelaire fucked up, it would be hard. You know, like like unless she stopped and said, "Damn, you wouldn't know it." Right. But if you are Annie Clark and you are singing and playing uh, while dancing around in fucking eight-inch heels, you know, like, like, there is no room for error in anything she's doing there. And Well, I mean, when was the last time you saw a one-person rock show? I Never. Yeah, right? Like, Like, nobody does it. It just is, it's a very unique skill set to be able to... To be able to do all those things in, I mean, it must be exhausting. I don't see yeah. how, how you wouldn't just get done and just be, because it's not like you can just do the, like, okay, guitar solo, I'm going to go over here and get a drink of water, yeah. you know, like finish my beer. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're it. You're, you're, you can't even like hang back while the bass player makes some chit chat. It's kind of like being a, like a stand up c- comic sort of like you're like, People are there to see you. Yeah. Like you're the, you're it. Like yeah. no breaks during your set. Yeah, it's just it's brave as hell. So you know, I guess my point being, if if I'm like finding this record lacking, like I, it's it's purely because it's at an early point in a development that's going to go way way up. And I think it's hard to it's it's often hard when you know what someone is going to become. Yeah, to look back at. Uh, look back at what they did. Um, this is, this is not related and you, know, you can cut this if you want, but I was watching this documentary on uh, John Coltrane Yeah, and it was all these people, you know, like rightfully fawning over John Coltrane, but also completely bagging on his <laughs> like first record that he released yeah. uh, while he was in the Navy, I think. But it, it was, it's just interesting because it's like, and I think they even admitted this, like they were that you're judging him based on what you know he's capable of. Yeah. And you don't just go from A to B, right? Like right. you don't just record a love supreme, right? Like yeah. you, <laughs> you've got to grow your way up to it. So I wonder if that's some of what, you know, so it's like, I think a ton. Yeah. yeah I mean, so if you went and of course we probably wouldn't be doing a podcast if somebody had just, Recorded four middle of the road albums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh no, I don't know. There's just there's tons of tons of nuggets. Like I just I love the fact. I it's hilarious to me that this is a person who left music school because it was too focused on, you know, too focused on thinking and not enough on feeling. And the album opens up with her like doing fancy looped guitar harmonics. Uh, you, you know, like. It's this weird thing where, like, I guess she hadn't gotten as far away from it as she thought she had, I guess. Or maybe she just 
you know, sometimes people push back against the structure. Yeah. I mean, like, people often say things like, well, if everyone went to art school, you wouldn't get a, you know, like, Jackson Pollock style art. But you probably wouldn't get a lot of other things too, right? Like, like there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people that benefit from that kind of technical foundation in a lot of different things. Definitely. Whether or not they end up leaving early or, or or doing whatever. I think that sometimes people need, some people don't need that. Some people do. Well, and I, I don't want to like bag on technical prowess. I think like, like, you know, part of why she's so amazing now is she figured out how to, balance all this technical prowess with with feeling and you know she just became someone with a lot to say and knew how to say it and you know like that's just that's not as here not as present here okay so the song your lips are red like i start i talked a little bit earlier about mike garson and i still i think there's just a mountain of interesting shit with his presence there. Listening to that song, like he is really coming close to what he did in Aladdin Sane in the background. You know, and I think part of that is maybe that's just his style or, you know, just part of his style. I don't know. It feels like a semi-intentional illusion and the, the tune of the song kind of edges close to a different Bowie song called Warzawa, which Garson actually didn't play on. But I guess my point with this is like, I don't know. I I was annoyed. I used to be annoyed when people were like, well, she is a, she's continuing the tradition of David Bowie. You know, because I thought that was just shitty and reductive and maybe kind of sexist, uh, you know, that she can't be her own thing. Like she has to exist in terms of this established guy. But now, like, now knowing that Garson is on this album and that there's this song that's just, like, spewing out Bowie signifiers, that changes the, you know, that changes my read on it. That, like, maybe she is, maybe she consciously wanted to, like, create an association or just, you know, I don't know, do it, a tribute. It, yeah, it's possible that she just liked his style of piano playing. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, I do think that people take different elements of things that have influenced them. And yeah, it's uh, with a lot of musicians. I think Bowie's, you look at people like Bowie and Bob Dylan, like they're just so, they're just so ingrained in kind of people's thought process that they can't help but trickle down into the. Yeah. Well, and Annie Clark definitely hears things and recycles them into like, like that's, you know, I when I was talking about the very first thing that made me notice her, it was that she had recycled the guitar line for You Only Live Twice uh, and turned it into a different great song. Um, there's another song on this album, All My Stars Are Aligned, that also quotes a different Bond theme. It does the like, dun, 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 dun. And that, I mean, that that's prominent enough that the Pitchfork review noticed that too. So I guess, you know, I guess she is just a person who will absorb a piece of music and then like build some new context around it and spit a little bit of it back out. And, you know, it's not that she's ripping people off because she's doing new and interesting things with them. But yeah, I just, I remember when I heard that song on the current, I was like, I swear that's the theme to you only live twice. Yeah. Uh, But I've I've been known to have that feeling and just be totally wrong. Yeah. Um, sometimes I see things there that I want, or I hear things that I want there to be. Yeah. But 
It's there. I well, so with that one, um, I guess you you haven't heard the uh, you haven't heard the new theme music and bumper music yet. I have not. No. Yeah. Uh, so the new theme music for the show, the new sh- opener, is I played that guitar line, um, and it sucked trying to record it because she, you know, it's the same notes, same progression, but she changes the. It's not even that she changes the rhythm. She just like puts this pause into it that is hard to play if you know like well this is you only live twice like you know your brain just wants to play you only live twice so what your brain wants to yeah exactly wants to my play. brain my brain wants to play any bond theme um i will say that is not my favorite bond movie no but it has the best theme it, yeah it's a terrible ass movie but uh, so the terrible thing is most of them honestly are terrible like i love them but they are yeah, I mean, like, yeah, no, they're they are even the good ones are, are sort of terrible. Yeah, Goldfinger, I think, is the best because it's just hey, uh, we're gonna be ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's it's Goldfinger is like is like okay, we're gonna we're gonna with the possible exception of Octopussy, uh, <laughs> is like we're gonna make every situation as ridiculous as possible. Like that's what more could you ask? The thing I love, like, this is actually, this is on topic, because there's enough James Bond musical quoting in the work of Annie Clark that, like, I think she's, uh, I think she's a fan. I guess that's, you know, we've really hopped around here, but we've hit all of the the notes I had about the album. I mean, overall, like, this just, this is so much a, like, early Proving Ground album that I don't have a ton of in-depth was it hard for you to listen to the apocalypse song as a young earth creationist? <laughs> yeah, I just I wrote that off to heresies she had picked up in the polyphonic spree. Okay. I mean, I I would say that there aren't a lot of songs about carbon dating, and so like that's probably one of the better ones that exists. <laughs> I feel like Neil Young must have a song about carbon dating. Yeah, I and I love Neil Young, so I'm going to put that disclaimer out there, but like Neil Young can be exhausting. <laughs> yes, he like, can. The show that we saw with Neil Young was was one of my favorite shows that I've been to in a long time. Ah, but he can exhaust you with 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 his work. Yes, he can. You know, like honestly, so like I I would love to see Annie Clark collaborate with Neil Young. Like like with two just very weird cool individuals with distinct guitar styles i would like 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 i would much rather you know the album she did with david byrne like why couldn't she have done that with neil young still time true true i'll i'll talk to my people oh <laughs> uh, well do you have anything else on this no i don't i'm looking forward to to kind of digging in though yeah so I, I think the i think that'll be fun that'll that'll be good and i, I i'm not Honestly, like I haven't listened to actor for a little yeah, while, we'll, so we'll see what it what it looks like now. Getting cold. Thank you for listening and uh, sitting through as we you know get this new new season off the ground. Um, I am Keith. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Pilly, and I'm Chad Cook. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Cook six two five two. And uh, you know, as always. Um, Love to hear from you if there's anything you like or didn't like, or uh, if you think we're a couple of dumbasses. 
I am guessing that in this season there's going to be a lot more room for people to uh, – I, I think the corrections window is going to be getting a lot more – um, I feel like that's probably accurate. And uh, please, you know, like if there's something you, uh, something we have very wrong or something you take objection with, please let us know. Like I, I love to hear it and love the discussions. Specifically, if you have something that Keith got wrong, I think we'd all appreciate that. And there, there, there'll be plenty. Um, if you dug the show, please tell people about it or go to iTunes or Google Play and leave a review. I imagine our reviews are. Pretty confusing at the moment because they're all about how much we know about Uncle Tupelo. Um, yeah, thanks, and we will talk to you again soon as we get into the serious song by song stuff with actor. Adios. <laughs>